Welcome back to the listener's commentary on 2 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. And this really is the formal beginning of the letter. So Paul opened the letter in verses 1 and 2 with his introduction and greetings. And in that, he called attention to his own apostleship and to his close relationship with Timothy. Now, as he moves into the letter itself... His close relationship with Timothy, Paul's ministry as an apostle, that's going to receive further attention as he proceeds with a thanksgiving. And so in verses 3 through 18, Paul is going to thank God for Timothy, and then that's going to lead Paul into some encouragement to Timothy, and that encouragement is going to lead to Paul reflecting on his own ministry and further encouragement to Timothy from there. That's sort of the flow of how these verses work. So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 3, that says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, as we noted at the introduction and greeting, Paul follows the, the typical standard for letters of the day. The sender to the recipient, greetings. Now, Paul has modified that and expanded that. Well, really what he's doing here in verses 3 and following is the same sort of thing. Typically, at this point in Greco-Roman letters of the day, you would get some sort of thanksgiving, or you would get like a well wish or a prayer wish. You know, may the gods favor you with good health and blessings or something like that. So Paul and all the other New Testament writers typically follow suit, and at, that, at this point in the letter, they have a thanksgiving. And Paul's thanksgiving here, again, it, it's going to grow and expand, and it's going to kind of weave its way out of a thanksgiving into encouragement. But he begins with that, and he says he thanks God for Timothy. And he does so as he remembers him in his prayers night and day. So when, as Paul prays in the morning and as Paul prays at night, and as he remembers Timothy in those prayers and lifts up uh, prayers to God on behalf of Timothy, part of that praying for Timothy is thanking God for him. And notice what Paul says about himself in relationship to God here in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. So even though Paul is chained up like a criminal and has been arrested, even though there's been all sorts of accusations against him, Paul doesn't succumb to the feeling of guilt or shame because he knows he's faithfully serving God and he's doing so with a clear conscience. He even says he serves him that way, the way his forefathers did. That is the faithful who have gone before him. Paul knows, he again, he's not out of step with his uh, faithful Jewish forefathers. He knows that in preaching Jesus as the Messiah, what he's really doing is preaching the culmination of the story of Israel, the culmination of the hope of his forefathers. And so he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. And as he prays regularly for Timothy, he also longs to see him. And so he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Now, we don't know the exact reason for Timothy's tears. Was Timothy going through some really hard stuff in Ephesus? Probably so, based on what we read in 1 Timothy. Was Timothy there or around when Paul got arrested, or did he receive news of that? Did that lead to his tears? Uh, did he hear about Paul's initial hearing and how poorly it went and that the outcome doesn't look good for Paul? We're not sure exactly what uh, motivated Timothy's tears. 
but I suspect it had something to do with Paul's situation. And that's why Paul says that seeing Timothy would bring Timothy joy and would bring himself joy. And so Paul has thanked God for Timothy and expressed his great desire to see Timothy. And then that leads Paul to continue reflecting on Timothy and his faith and his ministry and some of the things that probably are in Paul's mind as to why he thanks God for Timothy. And so Paul continues in verse 5, and he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it's in you as well. What's interesting is we rarely get this kind of personal info uh, about somebody in the New Testament. Timothy's family history included the sincere, that is the genuine, the unhypocritical faith of his grandmother and his mom. And we get their names here. His grandmother's name was Lois and his mother's name was Eunice. And we know from the book of Acts that his mom was a Jew. And that would probably mean that we're talking about his maternal grandmother here. And so she's a Jew as well. We also learn from Acts, Acts chapter 16, that uh, Timothy's dad was a Greek Gentile. And so that was a unique situation for him. But even though that was the case with his father, his mother and his grandmother were faithful followers of the one true God. And that same faithful faith that they demonstrated over the course of their life, well, Paul's seen that in Timothy too. That's why he says, sure, that's in you as well. It's not like there was any question about it. He's seen it. He's experienced it. He knows it's there, just like he, he saw it in his mom and, and heard about it or saw it in his grandmother. And so Paul knows it's in Timothy as well. And that's one of the reasons, I'm sure, why Paul thanked God for Timothy. And Paul's thanksgiving for Timothy and for Timothy's faithfulness also leads then into some encouragement from Paul to Timothy in his life and his ministry. And so verse 6, he says, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so because of this faithful faith that I, I know is in your family history and I know is in you, because I thank God for you, on, on, for this reason... I remind you to kindle afresh. And that word kindle afresh means fan into flame. So fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. Now, what does he mean by the gift of God? Well, the only other place Paul uses this exact same phrase is Romans 6.23. But there it refers to the gift of eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life. That's what he says in Romans 6.23. But Paul uses the word gift that's used here in the plural in 1 Corinthians 12 and following and in other places in his letters to refer to gifts given to the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14, Paul refers to Timothy's gift, same word as here, that was given through prophecy when the elders laid their hands on him. Here we have Paul laying his hands on him. So it seems like what we're talking about here is some sort of specific gift, probably a ministry type gift that was given to Timothy when Paul and the elders laid their hands on him, prayed over him, commissioned him to ministry. And we know from 1 Timothy chapter 4 that that gift was passed on and that prayer session included a prophetic message over Timothy or to Timothy about ministry. So Paul wants Timothy to stoke that gift into flame. 
And then he, he explains why that's so important, why you need to fan this into flame. He says in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. And so when God gave us a spirit, probably actually linked in Paul's mind to the spirit, when God gave us his spirit, his spirit is a spirit not of timidity, not of cowardice, not of fearfulness, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And so the Spirit himself, and that's probably who Paul's thinking of, works within us these qualities, strength, power, love, self-control, self-discipline. And, and, and Paul wants Timothy to fan into flame this gift of God rather than shrink back, rather than kind of hide in a corner, rather than kind of tamp it down. Like, it's going to take some courage, Timothy, there in Ephesus. It's going to take courage in, in if Paul really is executed for you to carry on the ministry without him. It's going to take some, some strength and some self-control and ongoing love. But God's given you that spirit to do that. So fan into flame this gift. That's the idea. And Paul has some specific ways that this reminder and this encouragement to Timothy ought to play out in Timothy's present situation. And so this is what Paul says, beginning in verse 8. He says, therefore, like, because God has given us this kind of spirit, because I want you to fan into flame this gift of God that's in you, therefore, do not be ashamed. Do not uh, cower back. Do not shrink back. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And so don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That is the message and the story about Jesus, like the story in their cultural context of an incarnate God. That, that's weird. A crucified Messiah. That is shameful in, in their cultural context, right? In fact, in Rome itself, um, they found some anti-Christian graffiti um, in Rome itself that has a Christian named Alexamenos bowing down before uh, the uh, Jesus on the cross. But in this case, the Jesus on the cross has a donkey's head and the caption reads, Alexamenos worships his God, right? Like a crucified God and a crucified Messiah. How disgraceful and shameful is that? And Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that. And don't be ashamed of Paul, Jesus' prisoner. Um, shame, in contrast to honor, was a very powerful motivator of behavior. And a bunch of Paul's co-workers and colleagues have deserted Paul at this point in time in his life, as he'll mention in chapter 4 of this letter, being imprisoned like a common criminal for a, a, a God who was crucified by the powers of Roman might and all of that. That's shameful and disgraceful. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed. Instead, rather, look at the second half of verse 8 where he says, but, that is strong contrast here, Allah in Greek, rather, join with me. So rather than being ashamed, here's what I want you to do. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Since God's given you this powerful spirit, um, that instills self-control and love and power, right? Join with me in suffering. And so this is how that power of, that spirit of power and love and self-control should play out in Timothy's life and situation. Uh, there's a good chance, right, that fanning into flame his gift of ministry will lead to this kind of suffering that Paul himself is experiencing. 
And, and that reminds us that the power of God, right? Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. The power of God doesn't keep us from suffering. The power of God gets us through the suffering. God in his power enables us to endure, enables us to continue to be faithful in the face of suffering, through suffering, even if he doesn't remove us from the suffering. And then this leads Paul to begin to wax eloquent about God and the gospel and everything that goes with it, right? Like, join with me in suffering for this gospel. And at that moment, Paul can't help himself but begin to sort of to, to just go on and on about the gospel and, and its message and how wonderful it is. So he says in verse 9, who, now who refers back to God, like uh, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling that uh, called us or invited us with a holy invitation, a holy calling and to be called into God's family and into what God has done. That's the holy calling that Paul is referring to, to be called into Jesus. This is a holy calling. Paul then continues uh, amplifying what God has done, now reflecting on how, on how God called and saved us. So God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, uh, but according to his own purpose and grace. And so that's how God called us and how God saved us, not according to our own deeds, our own works, but according to his own purpose and his own grace. It was by his grace and according to his will and his desire that we have been saved and we have been called. Um, and then he goes on and says, which was granted to us. And the which there, the last little bit of verse 9 refers back to the grace, this grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And so God saved us according to his grace, and he granted that grace to us in Christ Jesus, and that was God's purpose and plan from all eternity. So that's sort of the sense and the force of how all these phrases go together. But even though that was God's purpose and plan from all eternity, it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so God planned this way before he even planned the whole world. Uh, he planned to give us his grace in Christ, and that grace has now been made manifest. It's now been revealed through the coming of Jesus, uh, our Savior and our King. That's who Jesus is, right? By our Savior, Christ Jesus. Remember the word Christ, as we said in our last recording, emphasizes the fact that he's been anointed as king. So he is our Savior and he is our king. And what did Jesus do to bring us this grace? Well, Paul continues in verse 10 by saying, who, this is talking about Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality delight through the gospel. So this captures up Jesus' whole life, culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his enthronement as resurrected king, right? The gospel reports this news story, that um, Jesus is the resurrected king, and he has abolished death. He has canceled it out because he's actually won the victory over death. So now death is no longer the final word. And he brought life and immortality, the idea of ongoing, never dying life. He brought that to light 
through the gospel, through the, the, what he achieved. And that's what the gospel reports. The gospel reports what Jesus accomplished. That's the news story. And that news story needs people to tell it. Right? If, if, if the news is going to get out, someone's got to tell the news. And Paul was one of those appointed for this task of passing on the good news of what Jesus achieved. And so verse 11, Paul continues this reflection on all this. He says, for which, that is for the gospel, for the gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Let's Clarify those three words. The word preacher, don't picture a guy on a stage behind a pulpit in a church service per se. This word preacher means herald. So picture a royal herald announcing to everybody a message from the king, right? The guy, royal herald, riding through town, you know, with a great news report from the king for the whole realm. That's what this word preacher refers to as a herald. So Paul was appointed as a herald to announce the news that God has conquered death and brought eternal life into play through what he did in Jesus the Messiah. So he's a preacher. He's a herald. He's an apostle. We have, we've talked about that word already in our last recording as well. It means an official representative sent out uh, like an ambassador of somebody with authority, sent out to represent them. And so Paul is an apostle, an ambassador of King Jesus, and a teacher. Somebody who's going to explain and work out the implications and explain all the details of what this means. And so Paul has those, those three roles in his life um, for his ministry. Now, this is Paul's understanding of his vocation, his calling, his role in ministry and life. And it's this role that has led to his present suffering. Paul's chained up and it doesn't look good for him. And it's this role that has led to that. And so Paul goes on in verse 12 to say, and, and, and because of this high calling that I've been given, um, that's why I suffer these things. So look at verse 12. He says, for this reason, for this, uh, this vocation that I was given, I also suffer these things, this imprisonment, these chains, uh, the, the sense of shame that people cast on me, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to protect what I've entrusted to him until that day. Now, let's just clarify uh, a little bit on this. Paul, obviously, we hear Paul's confidence. Even though this is you know, oftentimes in their culture a cause for shame, Paul says he's not ashamed. Why not? Because he knows whom he believes. He knows he's believed in the resurrected king. He knows what he preaches, right? It's true. He knows that. So he's not ashamed. He's convinced that he is able to protect. And this is the phrase that really needs um, clarifying. What I have entrusted to him until that final day. What I have entrusted to him literally is just the deposit of me. And that's kind of vague. And they've really freed it up in this translation, but I think their freeing it up might cause us to misunderstand it, actually. Uh, when Paul says, um, the deposit of me, it's the exact same word that's used in verse 14, where it's translated, the treasure. And in view of that verse, which is really part of the same flow of thought we see here in verse 12, there in verse 14, what Paul is talking about is protecting the deposit uh, meaning the message that uh, Paul was entrusted, and now he's entrusting it to Timothy. And so I think that, and 
Contrary to this translation here that I just read, the verse doesn't focus on something that, that Paul has entrusted to God. The verse rather focuses on the deposit that God entrusted to Paul, that God gave to Paul, meaning the, the sound teaching, the sound words that Paul is announcing as a herald and an apostle and that is explaining as a teacher. That's what we're focusing on in context. And so this is not something that Paul has entrusted to God. It's the sacred deposit that uh, God has entrusted to Paul by giving him this ministry and this vocation. So even though this message, this sacred trust has brought Paul to prison and to trial and the outcome doesn't look good, Paul's convinced that God is able to protect that sacred deposit that, that Paul has announced and that he's taught and that he's heralded throughout the empire. And Paul wants Timothy to carry out his own ministry mindful of this same concern. Remember that this has all flowed out of the encouragement for Timothy to fan into flame his ministry gift. And so Paul returns now to where he started and he says, to Timothy, he says in verse 13, hold on to the example of sound words which you've heard from me. That's what we're talking about. That's the deposit, these sound words. Hold on to the example of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Protect through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, in Timothy and in Paul and all who are in Christ Jesus. Protect through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Remember that word treasure there is the same word that was translated um, what I have entrusted to him until that day. In other words, the deposit of me. Well, you, Timothy, you've got to protect this deposit which has been entrusted to you. And so Paul says, basically, hold on to my own example, my pattern of faithfully teaching and proclaiming these words. Hold on to this pattern of sound words. And that treasure is that good deposit. That literally is the way it reads, is the good deposit. Um, Paul had been entrusted with those sound words from God. Paul had passed on those sound words to Timothy. And Paul wants Timothy to guard that and to pass it on as well. In fact, he's going to say very shortly in chapter 2 that, Timothy, you got to pass that on to faithful men who also will pass it on to others. And so that's the focus of all of this here. So this is what Paul wants Timothy to do as a result of fanning into flame his gift, right? Fan into flame the gift, Timothy, that's in you. What does that mean? Well, that means don't be ashamed of it. Join in suffering for the gospel. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. Protect the good deposit through the power of the Spirit. That's what I want you to do, Timothy. This then leads to Paul recalling how there's been plenty of people who haven't held on to Paul's example. They haven't held on to sound words. They haven't protected the good deposit, the message that was entrusted to them. And so in verse 15, he says, you're aware, like you know this too, Timothy, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned against me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, when he says all who are in Asia that's hyperbole. We can, we'll know that very shortly because Paul's going to mention somebody who's faithful down below. But it's probably referring to maybe even some of Paul's colleagues there, some people that Paul had worked with in ministry, some that Paul had specifically poured himself into. That's probably what he's getting at is the, many of those people there, most of those people that I gave attention to and I taught, they've turned away from me. 
bare minimum, that means they've turned away from Paul and his ministry, right? Like, look at the shame, look at the suffering, and they've rejected that. But we also know uh, that some of these people, not just turned away from Paul, they actually rejected the gospel. Paul says they're causing people to shipwreck uh, their faith. And so uh, we know that some of them didn't just turn away from Paul himself, but also from the faith. And so if that's what Paul intends here, maybe so. Maybe it means him and, and Jesus. It's not 100% clear. But he names two people, uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes, uh, two people that were known to Timothy, two people that have caused problems for uh, Timothy and Paul in and around the city of Ephesus in the region of Asia. And while Paul is recalling this, he does recall a positive example as well. So he's calling all this to mind to remind Timothy, you've got to be faithful because it's not easy and not everyone has done it. But he does recall a positive example. And so he says, verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And so Paul holds to... uh, holds up, not just Onesiphorus the man, but his whole household that apparently is a place where uh, the church gathers. That's what we would assume by the reference to the household, but he's opened his home. The church gathers there. And Paul says, when he, that is Onesiphorus, was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. And so he was not only not ashamed of Paul's chains, he actually looked for him. And that was how he demonstrated his lack of shame in Paul's suffering and Paul's disgrace at being in prison. And so Paul says in verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And that day means the final day. So when Onesiphorus stands before Jesus on the final day, Paul basically says, may the Lord grant him mercy because of the way he's treated me and how he's been faithful to the gospel as a result of that. And then uh, Paul ends by saying, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. And so here's a positive example of somebody that's been faithful, somebody that uh, had received those sound words and have has stayed true to them, who's stayed faithful to Paul and his service and his calling and his ministry and how he's, he served the church there in Ephesus. And Timothy knows him. And Paul calls him to mind as a positive example for Timothy to, th- to think about and meditate on. And so as we wrap up this section out of 2 Timothy, just one thought for us, and that is the challenge and the importance of courage and strength to be faithful. And that's really what lies at the heart of this. And Paul's reminding Timothy that he's been given everything he needs to be faithful, especially he's been given the spirit of the living God, who's a spirit of power and discipline and self-control. And we too have been given that exact same spirit and we've been given all the resources we need to be faithful. And in those times where our faithfulness is challenged either by internal temptation or external trials, we have to be like Timothy and stand firm. And if we're serving Christ in some specific sort of way, we need to be faithful to our calling just as Timothy was called to be faithful. And so this whole section really reminds us of how important it is for us to stand firm, to be faithful, just as Timothy needed to, just as Onesiphorus was, that we need to continue to faithfully serve God in whatever way we can, right where we live on a daily basis. Thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded, 
Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous and faithful support of all sorts of people just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who give to this ministry. And if you want to join the team of supporters, the easiest way to do that is to go over to listenerscommentary.com and click the Give button. It'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount. You can click a little button that says Make This Monthly. And you can set up a monthly donation right there. You can set up a one-time donation right there. Or you could also decide to support the ministry through the Study Hub and sign up for the Study Hub, which is on a give-what-you-can-afford sort of basis. All monthly donors, either through the Give button or signing up for the Study Hub, get access to the Study Hub resources, uh, which includes my online courses, uh, which includes uh, maps and charts and special articles and pictures and things just to help you really dig in and study these books for yourself. So let me say in advance to all of you, thanks a ton for your support.